Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 16 years of law enforcement analysis experience all with Denver Police Department in Colorado. She was the chair of some great IACA conferences, and she's here to talk about process improvement. Please welcome Kristen Jacoby. Chris, how are we doing? Hey, Jason, how are you? Very good. I am uh, excited to talk to you. It was great catching up on the prep call. We met because of IACA conferences, Years ago, we always talk about how those can feel like family reunions after a while if you go to enough of them. And you were a staple there. And then all of a sudden, I didn't see you. And so it's like, what happened to Chris? And now it's been like seven, eight years, I think, since I seen you. So I think you can blame my small children. Yeah, Yeah, that happens. Yeah. That happens, but that makes me grateful that we are friends on Facebook because I have seen your children, the pictures of you and your wife and all that. It's It's been yeah. great seeing them grow up, So, but it's certainly understandable why you haven't made it to the IACA <laughs> conferences. So, Hopefully great. Soon. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah. So I actually was fortunate enough to take a class in my undergraduate studies for criminology that was called crime mapping and analysis. And I took it because I was kind of at the point in my, in my studies that I was like, okay, I got to find something you know, tangible to do with this degree when I graduate, like I need a job, you know, theory is great and interesting, but, but I want to work in the field and not in a patrol officer capacity. So I took this class and my professor is a guy you might've heard of, Noah Fritz. (laughs) Uh, He was the adjunct professor where I went to school at the University of Denver. So he was teaching this course and come to find out it's it's somewhat similar to the CMAP course that used to be offered, just in a, a longer, more academic setting. So that's how I was kind of introduced to crime analysis and crime analysis as a potential profession. And that's how I got hooked up with Noah. Nice. Well, that that paid off, certainly. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> All right. This is at the National Law Enforcement Corrections and Technology Center. Is, is Right, is. right. So the class was actually through DU, but after the class and I think after a, a study abroad session with a lot of fun, I came back and was like, okay, time to buckle down. So mm-hmm. I reached out to Noah and ended up kind of doing a like an independent study slash internship sort of thing with him through the National Law Enforcement Corrections and Technology Center. So I was kind of his just, we called me crime analysis assistant, and I helped him with whatever projects he was working on through the center and also got my foot in the door at Denver PD as an intern. I was doing some 
crime mapping for them. It's interesting. It was, this was at a time when the the department, Denver, was just sort of newly exploring crime analysis, and they had actually taken sworn community resource officers and, for lack of a better word, made them do crime analysis. Mm-hmm. And they called them mm-hmm. they called them community resource officers slash crime analysts. So they had minimal training and we're just kind of, you know, like here, do do this new thing. I think some of them went through the CMAP program, but certainly it was at that time when, you know, sworn were not necessarily interested in, in kind of doing this work. So needless to say, they were happy to have a college student come in and do some free crime mapping for them. And yeah. I think I was probably, I don't know, 2005-ish, if I'm going to date myself, but yeah, yeah definitely using Esri products, maybe 3.1 or 3.2, <laughs> making some kernel density map, super old school. Oh, I just, yeah. I just thought it would, it would be great just to have someone that uses products now to just put them in front of a computer that has 3.1, 3.2. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Oh, I would love that. Like a like even like a college student now, I'd be like, here you go. This is what we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead. Geocode. See how you yeah. like that. Hope you got some time. <laughs> You're going to love matching addresses. It's the best. Oh, man. So, yeah, but the, the, I've had several on the show now that we have talked about the ArcMap 3.1, 3.2. And I, I always say this, that, that program, I swore at that program more than any other program during my career as a law enforcement analyst. Oh, for analyst. sure. For sure. I, oh, um, man. I remember coming across old files, you know, as I was kind of cleaning things out. And I'll just say some of the file names were profanity, not probably appropriate <laughs> for this podcast. But I could very easily see my level of frustration by my file name choice on the whatever and it's time I've run something so I feel that yeah so then you got the internship at at Denver PD and this leads to a position an associate crime analyst position exactly so I was fortunate enough to just step right out of undergraduate and right into DPD I think I started 10 days after I graduated, maybe. And I had a job lined up before. And I think it's pure happenstance. It it was at a time when the department had made the decision to civilianize crime analysis. So Mm -hmm. they relieved some happy police officers from that (laughs) duty. And, and we're hiring six patrol district analysts. So I think that that's really, you know, I attribute a lot of my starting my career to obviously um, networking and by happenstance, you know, taking the right class with the right people, getting my foot in the door and Noah helped a lot. And then, you know, working with DPD that I had enough name recognition and, and FaceTime in there as an intern to kind of have them take a chance on me as an analyst with fairly limited experience. And I, I'm not sure that I would have gotten that position right away had they not been trying to hire six of us at the same time. So yeah. some, you know, some networking and some pure luck, I have to admit. Yeah. And I, I, I understand it, it, in a way I, I kind of equate it to, you know, when you buy a house in a neighborhood before it, it gets expensive and then, yeah. 
then you get into it where it's expensive. And now it's like, well, if I if I was to try to buy a house in this neighborhood now, I don't know if I could do it type thing. And so oh. when you did, if there was actually a lot of competition to some of those things, you wonder, it's like, oh, well, I have gotten in there. If I didn't have that internship and got the foot in the door and this was an open competition, would I have gotten that position, right? Yeah, it's, it's, 100%. I, I mean, I think of that often when, you know, I've been sitting on several hiring panels as we've grown our unit and are are hiring new analysts and and I look at the the qualifications to even get an interview, let alone the job. And I I certainly did not have quite that much when I started. So yeah, I guess I bought at the right time. Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. And because it I I also too feel that it's just fantastic that you had a job 10 days after undergrad, you know, you graduated college. Yeah, I uh, I felt pretty lucky about that, too. I mean, lucky on one hand, mostly lucky, but also like, oh, I guess I got to do this (laughs) grown-up life now, like right away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so then when you first start, you're uh, walking in the door as an analyst for the first time and they've hiring six of you. What's it like and what are they trying to establish in the beginning of these positions? So I think that's that's interesting because it was being built from the ground up with kind of the CMAP, you know, with their sort of instruction and, and guidance. So we were fortunate to have some training through that department and lucky that the National Law Enforcement Corrections and Technology Center was local and right there. So we had we had some resources, but I think, you know, certainly it's it's always hard when it's kind of a new thing that that no one's ever done before. So I think it was kind of like the blind leading the blind to some extent, but it was getting buy-in. You know, that was mm-hmm. the hardest part to do because it's a it was a new thing that a lot of detectives and patrol officers had never utilized before. They hadn't had that resource and they didn't really know what it was. So it almost kind of felt like a marketing campaign to some degree. I think, you mm-hmm. know, it was that was a little bit of a tricky thing for me to step into as not only my first, you know, full-time adult grown-up job, but also that it's this is a new position and a new a new resource in the department. So it was a lot, a lot all at once. And and to boot, we had paper reports, handwritten paper <laughs> police reports at the time. We had not not yet um, invested in a records management system that came a couple years later. But uh, you know, we had we had some like some rudimentary capabilities, but it was like, you know, relying on patrol officers to hope hope they remembered to make a photocopy of the police report they were turning in and like put it in the crime analyst box, you know, and that's how yeah. I, I read reports at the beginning. Yeah, so it was a lot, a lot of new stuff all at once. I can think of one story that kind of sums up how it started off for me. So there was a detective and he was, I don't know, within within a year of retirement. So he was plenty, plenty crusty. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, and here I walk in like a, a, a civilian and be a young person. And like, he takes one look at me and says, I got shoes older than you. <laughs> and <laughs> right then and there, I was like, okay, so I'm going to have, you know, my work cut out for me. Like I got to got some stuff to prove here. And that's, I think, what I spent 
a lot of time doing is just figuring out how I could be a good resource to the patrol and the detectives in my district. It's just listening to to someone talk about there's situations where folks move up the corporate ladder and are very successful at each step along the way, but then they get up and eventually become CEO and they're horrible at being CEO. And they were perfectly fine and successful being in that realm where they understand exactly what's expected of them. They know the goals, the goals are set for them and they're just doing right. They're not Mm -hmm. not thinking, planning, leading. They are just doing what they're, they're there to do. And in a way it got me thinking about situations where you have these analysts brand new, just like you were in, in your position. And it, it is really daunting that they're just like, it's brand new to the department, brand new to you. You're not really boxed in, in any way. You can go literally in any direction that you want. And I struggled with that concept a little bit. I'm like, I need you to kind of box me in. Like, what are my goals? Like, what do you want to see? What's success look like for us? But how did you feel thinking back? Right. I I totally agree. I mean, I think given my experience now, if I were put in a situation where it's like, here you go, blank, you know, it's blank slate. You can build this what you want. I would love that, you know. But at the time, being that it that I was so brand spanking new in my career, it was definitely daunting. And I, I certainly could have used, you know, some, some boundaries, some guidance, kind of some, some direction. And I think, you know, eventually we got there and, and it was just a little bit of baptism by fire, but it was also, it was also kind of nice to be able to shape that, mm-hmm. even if I didn't quite feel prepared in my career to do so. Yeah. Hmm. Now, did you eventually get the buy-in from the curmudgeon? You know, I think I think a little bit. I think yeah. I think after a while, he was like, "Okay, you're not so bad," and, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and yeah, like I said, he he was gone not not long after, within a year, I would say. So. Yeah, I just that yeah. reminds me. That reminds me. I started at, my first ALS gig was at Baltimore Police Department. I was Washington Baltimore Haida employee stationed at. Baltimore Police Department and I you know guys there again I, it's kind of the same thing I was 23 and and those yeah. a lot of those guys were I think they were civilian most of them were civilian but they had retired as mm. Baltimore police officers right so again I they had shoes older than me just as you described <laughs> I'm trying to remember how the n- nicknames came about but they called me snots <laughs> I <was> like, I, <laughs> I think it was based on the dog from a, a Lampoon's Christmas movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. remember, but I can't remember how that name stuck with me or whatever it was. But I eventually did win them over, but they did have that nickname of Snots for me. But. Yeah, and that's funny because that's when you know that you've kind of like made it, that you're a part of the team is when you, you know, get nicknames and like get get teased and get, you know, joked around with. It's, I think that's somehow comforting to know that that's the same everywhere, that that's like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'm, guess I'm part of the team now. It could be good or bad, but in this case, it definitely was good. 
So, yeah. All right. So let's talk about your analyst badge story now. For those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works on. And so for you, it's it's 2008. You know, it's just mm-hmm. around the time you, you hadn't been an analyst for very long that you get linked to a pretty big case. Yeah. And I'm just kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about is I, I chose this as my badge story mainly because it, it really got me a lot of buy-in. Me personally as an analyst, but also just I think the the department at this point was recognizing what what we can do and how we can be helped. So real quick, the story was that I identified a team of individuals. They were led by two brothers and they were taking vehicles, putting them up on blocks, and then they would take the high-end rent and and sell them. But it was, you know, like in 2008, we're talking like $15,000 rents. Um, yeah. So that's kind of blew my mind then and still even, I guess. But basically the crew was, was using stolen trucks. So they would steal trucks and then go and dump their rims to hit several several cars a night and dump the rims and just leave them on blocks. And what I started doing was tracking the stolen trucks, but more importantly, the recovery of the stolen trucks. And it just so happened that they were uh, kind enough to me to just dump them within blocks of their house. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, again, again, a little bit of luck. That's You got to take what you can get. Um, yeah. So we we pretty quickly had a very small area to focus on where they they likely were their headquarters was so once we kind of narrowed that down i worked with one of the detectives to to identify you know who in that area and set up some surveillance and and eventually the case went to grand jury and so i testified in grand jury but it was it was a pretty long drawn out investigation um and I think I also got a little street cred because I went on some of the operations, which was super cool. And I was glad that that my command was supportive of that. I mean, not only obviously is it fun, let's be honest, but I think mm-hmm. it is actual actually beneficial to the analyst to kind of see operationally how things happen and how the information that that you provide might be useful and how you could make better recommendations or provide different types of it. I think it serves two purposes. And and in this case, you know, like I said, I, I suddenly was looked at maybe a little bit cooler. Like, oh, you, oh, you're out in the middle of the night with us. Okay. <laughs> you're all right. You're all right. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that was my, my first big case. And you know, I think that's kind of important for every analyst to to have that under their belt as a confidence booster, as you know, just as proving yourself that you can you can be of value and here's how you do it. Nice. I'm curious about the victims of of these uh, stealing the rims, because to me, if you got ten thousand dollar rims on your vehicle, then I would think that you would have on a car alarm or at least it in, in somewhere that it couldn't, you know, be just left on blocks. You would think you would, that, that should be a safe assumption. But oftentimes, you know, the cars, you could tell that the, the rims were worth more than the car. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> so I think sometimes that was the issue. Other times, I think it just was, you know, just so quick that it happened. Yeah. 
I think yeah. a couple times with the like really the nicer high-end cars and rooms they would sometimes even steal it and and drive it to somewhere a little bit more remote and then do their thing but but you know I mean again it was 2008 so I think alarms and technology is probably not as good yeah Hmm. yeah also also makes me wonder you know I'm wondering how fast that they could do it right because if you ever watched a car race you see the pit crew how fast they can change tires out and you know it's Makes me wonder. I was like, hey, you know, it wouldn't. Yeah, if mean, no alarm, it's probably you got the right equipment there. It probably wouldn't take but a couple of minutes to get all yeah. four tires off the car, especially right. if you're just and, leaving them on blocks. Right, exactly. And they would have at least three, sometimes four people working at a time. So I hmm. think that they probably could do it pretty quick and got pretty good at it because you're right. You You don't actually care about the car so you were just there to do it quick if you scratch it if you whatever who cares you know not your concern so they I imagine they were able to do it pretty quick so how did you find out that they were first stealing trucks to then use to steal the rims well we assumed that that they were using trucks just based on the size of vehicle they would need to to load the rims and based on mm-hmm. how many they were doing and i noticed an an increase in uptick in truck theft kind of around the same time so it was a lot of assumption at the mm-hmm. beginning and then you know once we kind of saw the the truck recovery we were like okay yeah that's that's what they're doing i think another in one of the cases there was a witness who you know didn't see the whole thing but saw like a truck fleeing down the street and then noticed the vehicle on blocks so i think that we knew they were using trucks mm. and that there were also a lot stolen at that time yeah. mm. all right and and you mentioned that you testified to the grand jury and it's interesting i've i've never been part of a, a grand jury and so i guess is it did you find it to be different i mean obviously you gone on to do other types of court stuff but i mean is it is the grant was the grand jury different in your mind i don't want to say easy because it's you know it's important and official but it's it's not very stressful because you don't have defense there you know it's Mm -hmm. pretty much just the prosecutor asking you to take the grand jury through the evidence that you have and i you know i spoke a lot about the mapping that i did and how that works and what is crime mapping and and things like that. And I um, actually looked up and there was a grandeur sleeping during my presentation. So I'm, <laughs> I managed to lull at least one to sleep. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was a really cool process to be a part of because, you know, it's it was at the time like very hush-hush, top secret. You have to be sworn in. You can only talk about the case with other others who are sworn in and so that that part of it was just neat to to kind of be a part you know part of that mm-hmm. but but yeah as far as the actual testifying it is pretty low stress oh. hmm. now did they eventually found guilty plead guilty how yes, did it end they up they were yeah they were they did they did plead guilty yes grand jury came back and found them responsible and then they pled out Hi, this is Stacy Belladin. As an aspiring crime analyst, I tried to find any training available to learn. Learn from classes, workshops, conferences, networking, you name it. 
If I could give one piece of advice, it is to invest in your future. I see many analysts sit out of training not to go to important conferences because their agency won't pay for it. And that happened to me too, but there's nothing that says you can't figure out how to get there on your own. Submit a presentation on your work, and you may find that some conferences will waive your registration. Buddy up in a hotel room to cut costs. Find local opportunities on online training where you don't have travel costs. Just like you budget for a vacation or a child's education, you should do the same for your continuing education. It's worth it. So this is Sam, and I want to let you know that it's okay to talk to strangers. Obviously not if you are four or if you're walking alone at night or in the woods. But in general, if you're just out in your day-to-day life or you're traveling or whatever, talk to somebody, talk to strangers. It makes you a more interesting person because it gives you more perspective on life. Everyone is walking around with an interesting story. So many people will defy your expectations. When you you see someone and you make certain assumptions about them, whether they're conscious or unconscious, I love the moment when you realize you were wrong. It's a great feeling, and I think it makes your life richer in general. You know, if you're too shy, then maybe just read Humans of New York. That might help you to, to understand other people's experiences. But I'm just here to say, don't not talk to strangers. So you're an associate. We're going to kind of speed up through some of this yes, now. Sure. And, and and so you stay an associate crime analyst until 2016. For the police department, you become a statistical researcher. Is that something that was a promotion? Was it something that you applied for? How did that come about? Yeah, so I spent that time between the beginning and the, the move to the statistical researcher in two different patrol districts. So kind of the same, you know, just patrol district crime analysts, but I kind of moved around the city, switch it up a little bit, and then just kind of got to a point in my career where I needed something fresh mm-hmm. and some change. And I think that that's the fact that Denver's been able to grow our analytical unit and capabilities so much. We're up to 19 positions right now, I believe, 18 or nice. 19. Yeah, it's it's really great because it's provided more opportunity to kind of move around and do different things. And I just was ready for a change. So this position became open and I applied for it. And it is, it was out of headquarters and it is a position that does a lot more administrative analysis and kind of looks at more long-term projects. And it's on the same floor in headquarters as the chief's office. So there's a lot of, you know, brass just walking over and asking questions. This unit, this smaller unit, we call it 412. That just happens to be the number of the office that we're in. Hmm. Uh, but that's how we, you know, tell the difference between <laughs> the, 412, the 412 nerds, as they're affectionately called, and the other crime analysis people who are the other analysts who are working in districts or other specialized units. But this 412 group is, you know, like I said, headquarters and kind of serves a purpose to do more administrative analysis for the chiefs. The the unit also handles public information requests and open records requests. So it's just, it's, it's quite different actually from a district crime analyst, the work they're doing. But I think what I benefited from the most was a a better understanding of our data and how our data works and how 
it can be used, how complicated it is, how messy it is. I think at the time, you know, in, in the crime analysts and, and to some degree still in our department, you almost have like kind of tunnel vision on what you're doing. And it's like, you've got a data set and it works and you use it, but you don't really know how much data exists out there until you're looking at all kinds of different questions. And so that was kind of eye-opening for me, for sure, to look at mm. the all the various, you know, projects and questions we get it was really interesting. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The point that I was going to make is you have various data, but what question are you trying to answer? And that's certainly different for somebody that may be an investigator or patrol officer versus someone that's on the executive staff or the police chief answering various questions. So those are obviously not only just two different levels, but you're asking different things of the same data. Right, right. And and even using different different data that I never used before because I hadn't I didn't have the, the occasion to use it. You know, for for example, one of the first things I did when I switched to that unit is I, I worked on a couple of internal affairs investigation cases and I was plotting GPS data from cars, AVL data. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and I'm like, oh wow, like it didn't even occur to me that this existed. If I stopped to think about it, sure it would make sense that I knew it was there, mm-hmm. but I just never really considered how that would be used or why or what in what context. So it was pretty eye opening, I would say for sure. Yeah. Well the union certainly doesn't like that. No, no, definitely not. So, so, and you might have mentioned this, but I, maybe I didn't hear it. Was this also a new position, a new unit, and you were one of the first to, to have it? No, this was fairly established by the time I got there and, and others had been in the position before me, but I was trying to think, I don't want to state wrong, but I believe Mm -hmm. I was the only person to go internally from a crime analyst to this job we had other people in in that position who had been i think we had one person who had been a crime analyst before in a different jurisdiction but and then you know she went back to crime analysis within our department but it was kind of the first time that someone had been doing crime analysis work in our department and gone to that 412 work group. That was really interesting to see because there'd always been like a little bit of a disconnect between the two working groups, mainly just because they were doing kind of different different work, you know? Mm-hmm. So my I kind of just made it my prerogative to really try and bridge that gap and say, yeah, there's a lot of data and a lot of cool stuff we could do that that you just don't know about as a district crime analyst because you don't have the time or you don't have like the need to use it, but you probably could find some really cool things if you knew this existed or knew how these tables connected or, um, you know, the list goes on and on. So I kind of, you know, eventually kind of made the, made it my goal to to try and bridge that gap between the two. And, and I think it's it's gotten better for sure. Hmm. Yeah. I've always encouraged analysts to try to identify new data sets whenever they can within their department, in the city, wherever Mm -hmm. they can, because you just never know when you you might need that data set. Right. I agree. Yeah. So you were there five years as a statistical researcher. Yeah. Is there a 
a case or project that sticks out or an accomplishment that you had while in those five years? No, I don't know that I could point to one specific project. I will say that I was in the budget process mm-hmm. for probably three of those years, and I can safely say that I wish to never be a part of that again. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is not my calling. I did not not enjoy that at all. But I think I think my biggest takeaway really is that overarching, just understanding our data in a different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's funny you mentioned budget. I just heard that Cincinnati Police Department, you know, I, I think I was part of a couple of meetings that talked about the budget. And then I it was during a time where the city wanted the police department to cut their budget. And then you realize that the staff is 90 percent of the budget. So it's it's, when you're talking about cuts, it's really hard to cut the budget without cutting staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those can be some some tricky conversations and they're, you know, very political. And I feel like as as the analyst kind of trying to put some, some metrics together for that, you rarely always understand all the political implications or happenings around it you know you have an idea but you might not know what conversations have been had with council or the mayor or or, you know it's just you find yourself kind of embedded in these high level high stakes discussions and it's just it's a different it's different than what we usually do right Mm -hmm. yeah and just curious why did they call the position statistical researcher and not an analyst title? So that is a great question. And actually, I think, you know, we are in the process of moving those title names under a, a different just data analyst category. For that reason, it just makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But others in the position, or I think initially the position when they were created, I think the idea was that it would be a little more statistics heavy, kind of building out some models and and doing a little more stats work. Like I said, I was the first one that went from crime analyst to that position. So I think I was, I'm probably not a typical statistical researcher in the department. I think you're looking at someone with more experience with R or programming even and, and some of those other more technical skill sets that I don't have just as a, a traditional crime, an- crime analyst. But interestingly, you know, we've we've had a couple of people who fit the the title, the job title of statistical researcher really well and the and some of the job descriptions, but but they actually come in and, and don't end up staying that long because that's when you get in, get down to it, you know, that's a very small part of what that job's doing. So I think, you know, the the plan as of now is to kind of reclass those and rename them as under a data analyst category, just to kind of line it up with the work that's actually being done. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, this, as I mentioned, in the end of the December 2021, you become a senior data analyst. It's here where you're in more of a mentoring role and you get into more of the process improvement, right? Right. Yes. And I am actually still in that 412 work group mm. but in just in a different position and this was a, a newly created position and i think kind of mostly to kind of build on that bridging the gap between the 412 you know 
resources and tools and and kind of figuring out how we can use some of these in districts in my case specifically but i also work with special specialized units like you know all major crimes and special investigations all those various analysts that we have so that we can all sort of just be aware of of what the resources are and Mm -hmm. not only the resources but frankly like the pitfalls of our data and the issues that might pop up and data integrity and and those kinds of things so we just overall are trying to improve our the way we use our data Hmm. and and how how you've done that for a little over a year now and so how is that process going with the trying to improve the processes given that you have two separate groups yeah i think we're i think it's going i think we have some (laughs) some room to do yeah we've had like a, a little bit some staff changes and you know the returning to work from half you know we're still half in the office all the COVID challenges I don't yeah Mm -hmm. I don't need to like go down that rabbit hole but uh, but you know so I think it this past year has not quite been what will be a typical year in this position Mm -hmm. but I think we have a good start I'm also still doing some of my previous previous work so there's some overlap there but I think you know I think it's good we had in the past year we've hired four analysts we had over covid we had budget freezes so we were quite understaffed for a long period of time and then you know we're able to hire those once the positions opened up and three of those are district analysts so mm-hmm. half of our district analysts are less than have been with the department for less than a year so there's been a lot of opportunity for onboarding and training and I really like that. I really like being a resource for new analysts to kind of, hey, how does this work? Or like, what's your take on this? Or can I get your advice about this? I think I like that because I didn't have it. And so I Mm -hmm. see the value for a new analyst to have someone where you can have open dialogue and like no judgment, ask questions, whatever, you know, to build, start building their career and and same for like our more seasoned analysts you know things come up all the time and and I think what we've been working towards is just creating a work environment where it's you know safe and comfortable to ask questions and and our data is so big and so robust and so complicated and and wrong and messy and you know that there is not one single person in our analytical unit who knows everything Mm -hmm. and has all the answers. So I think that's really important that we've kind of created this space where it's okay to be like, hey, I don't understand how XYZ works about our arrest data. And I like I actually use arrest data for a reason because that one is something that always trips me up even still, you know? Yeah. So I think that that just kind of acknowledging that and talking about it and it being okay that I've been there for 16 years and I still like, you know, things change and all the time. And we have to kind of learn together. As far as process improvement, I think the main thing that we're working on is trying to free up some time for the district analysts. What recurring reports are they doing where we could maybe automate a piece of it, you know? And mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's a, the main, main goal with, with process improvement is just some time savings, some automation where it makes sense, just yeah. review. I, that's a big thing we've been working on is having someone get a second set of eyes on an important thing going out. Just overall, just improving how we do things and documentation. 
which is a big thing that we've kind of lacked. Yeah, that's never fun. I, I, I don't know. know. And, I don't know yeah. anybody that likes to do documentation. <laughs> no, no, but it's, we had a, our long-term supervisor of the unit, Chris Wyckoff, retired in the middle of COVID and she just did so much. She was, she did so much work. Mm. And I realized, I, I think a lot of us became this person, but I feel like I got a lot of it where it's like someone would email me like, Chris Wyckoff used to do this for me. Can you give me the like updated 2020 numbers? And I spent a lot of my time trying to recreate what she did to figure out how she did it or why she left XYZ off or, or like, can I even get that number again? Can I duplicate it? And I think that you know, her leaving and, and us trying to kind of redo some of the stuff she did or update it is, is what really prompted this. They're like, okay, we've got to like, you know, create some data standards and create some process standards and some documentation so that we're not so heavily dependent on one person. Yeah. Hmm. So it's interesting because I think when you, we first started talking about process improvement, my head went to standardization and I, I'm not ex- Exactly sure that's the avenue that you're taking. I think that it is part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it, actually. And we're shortly in not only the police department, but but the overall department of safety. So we've got, you know, some kind of more citywide safety analysts who are more focused on like social harms and fire and EMS. So that entire department of safety, a few of us kind of from each section are going to start meeting to create some data standards and disclaimers and and kind of just try to be on the same page. And and standardization is actually, yeah, a big piece of that, you know, everything down from, okay, what what do I do when I find a burglary pattern? Like, you know, I'd like to get to a place where it's like step one, you know, case list. Yeah, like yeah recipe. So that, Right, exactly. So that we just kind of have the initial piece to start with and everyone does it the same and here's how. And once, you know, once that first piece is done, then the creativity can start and by all means take it whichever direction, you know, makes sense. But that's, I think that's, yeah, a huge piece of it. Yeah, it's a huge challenge too because Mm -hmm. to get people on the same page, especially if you're not part of the same unit and that. just you're literally forcing people to do it one way right and it's it it amazes me when i talk to folks in the uk or even in canada or whatever and they have like one police department and even at different departments they are using the same forms and the same process in place and i was like man we can't we can't even decide what we want to do within the same department let alone trying to get all seventeen thousand police departments in the united states to do things the same way so it's just so daunting i mean sometimes even answering a question that you know it's at face value seems really simple is hard even to do it the same way in the same department i mean i use this example of traffic fatalities. We had a press conference coming up and and the chief at the time asked how many traffic fatalities. And 
you know, like in theory, that should be fairly easy for any analyst in the department to just quickly pull that data. But I was talking to the traffic analyst and he was explaining all the nuances, like what counted as a traffic fatality. And it's based on, okay, this this person was in the hospital for two months and eventually passed away. But after, I forget how many days, after 60 days, it's no longer considered like the cause of death was traffic. And, mm. you know, like this person was a fatality because in the traffic unit, because they were hit by a light rail train, but that doesn't count as a traffic fatality, you know? So it's just yeah. like so complicated and so <laughs> hard to get everyone on the same page. And that, and, and like I said, that you would think that would just be an answer that you could just, just have, right? I mean, just, mm -hmm. you would just know how many people died in traffic accidents, <laughs> but yeah. So there's always more to it. Yeah, it's never straightforward. Hmm. As I mentioned in your introduction, you were the conference chair for how many times were you conference chair for the ICA? I think twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think I did it two years in a row. And and then how many times were you on the the conference committee? I think just one one time on the conference Other. committee, not not as the chair. Chair. Okay. Right. And then you know, had you gone, how many conference, ISCA conferences have you gone to? Ooh, I knew you were going to ask that as soon as we started talking about it and I didn't <laughs> count them up. But, but oh, I don't know. I well, here, let me, say that. let me ask you another question that I like to yeah. ask. Like, do you have a favorite conference? Oh, man. I think Dina was really good. I okay. a, that was a good one. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't throw my first one in there. I, my first one was the year I started at DPD, and that was New Orleans. And again, like with the luck and the NOAA situation, I, I kind of got to go last minute because he was on the board at the time. Maybe I think he was president at the time, the ICA. And yeah. he, you know, there was a scholarship kind of thing situation last minute. So me and another Denver analyst who had just started, Kevin Wong, the two of us got to go and it was just really, really cool to see what other departments were doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was, I mean, it was only a matter of months, probably three months after I started. And mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, like we spoke about earlier, that space I was in where it's just, it's also new. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it was really helpful for me to see like what can be, you know, what, what this can be and what directions we can go in. And it was also <laughs> very eye-opening to be like, what other police departments have data in their computers, not just like in a pile of police reports <laughs> on their desk? That's a what, thing we can what do. What sorcery is this? Yeah, like what's happening? That, that yeah, and Orleans. Then, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say like, and and that's not even touching on all, all the networking that started, which I think is, I could go on for hours about about that building professional contacts and you know best friends for life and just yeah i could go on yeah. and on oh and that new orleans that's right after katrina right hurricane katrina it was yeah, yeah right it was. So, so that was the time i did not go to that conference but i've heard a couple of people talk about that particular conference so well as chair of the, the conference committee was there something you were particularly proud of that the conference achieved during your two stints? I think, you know, I think 
the biggest the biggest goal for any conference chair is that attendees gain something from it. Mm-hmm. And I think that both those years, I feel comfortable saying that, you know, that people came and they learned. Mm-hmm. I think that like that's that's the case for every conference I've ever been to. There's there's great things to learn there. You know, so I think it's just that and not blowing the budget and pulling it off, to be honest. The fact that it even happens and it runs smooth, like that's that's a huge accomplishment, knowing how many pieces there are to put yeah. together and, and how much planning and hard work it really takes for those volunteers to to pull it off, you know. So I think that I think that in itself is an accomplishment and everything else a little bonus. Yeah. And I, what were the two that you were chair of? The Ravella Henderson was the first one I did and then Denver the next year. Oh, that Henderson. That was the yeah. one right outside of Nevada. Yes, right outside of right outside oh, of Vegas. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not Nevada. Yeah, yeah Vegas in, yeah, in Nevada. In the oh, Nevada. Yeah. yeah. That was the one that we weren't sure if the lights were going to stay on the week we were right. there because it looked like they were yeah. about ready to sell the place. <laughs> exactly, like... and they were um, like there were you know the restaurants weren't open and because yeah. right because the place was like kind of deserted it was strange but it was you know that's kind of the thing that you plan and you plan and you get there and there's going to be some issue but you work through it and yeah then. it is it is funny when i think back about it because i remember like they were stressing you know you make sure you put henderson nevada not las vegas because some cities won't want you to go to to a conference in Las Vegas. Exactly, right. Right, and then we've obviously, I think most of them have gone there now. I mean, I don't, it seems like such, it almost seems like a silly concept now that most, yeah, there's so yeah. many conferences that go in in Las Vegas. It just seems like silly to try to be trying to dodge it. Yeah, and and that was, I think, the reasoning at the time, you know, that I was like, oh, I can't do, can't do Vegas. And, and it was, you know, I became the chair after the location was selected, obviously, because that's done yeah. pretty far yeah. in advance, even more so now. Just mm. kind of work with what you have. Yeah. Now, was there something that you wish you could have changed about the whole conference experience? That is a good question. I think, I think as an attendee, it's always hit everything that I was hoping I would get out of it. From a planning perspective, sure. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. in a perfect world, we could hire a professional event planner mm-hmm. because that's what they, they do for a living. So I think it's interesting that that we've been able to have so many successful conferences with amateur event planners mm-hmm. slash crime analysts who are full-time working crime analysts and like doing this, you know, as they have free time in their days and their nights and weekends. Yeah, it does kind of make me wonder what kind of event we could pull off if if there was, you know, room in the IACA for a paid professional event planner. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah, especially something like Vegas too, where it's, you know, there's just so many opportunities to get some really good deals on a variety of products and events and services. Totally. And full confession, Mm -hmm. I had one of my good friends is an event planner in Denver, and I called her in a panic one day because I was like, this is what they're telling me that the audio visual is going to cost. And she's (laughs) like, nope, they're ripping you off here. That's BS. Like, (laughs) like... I'm going to call them or, you know, I forget if she called them or gave me the talking points. And, and those are the kinds of things where I'm like, well, yeah, like we just don't know that because it's not our industry and, you yeah. know, and we're, 
we're crime analysts like volunteering to try to put this massive event on and uh, it's hard yeah it's a lot of work and, yeah yeah and it, it's it's interesting because it, it's just you don't know what to push back on right exactly. some of that stuff right. they'll right. be like well that's not negotiable well real is it really or are you just it? you know right it's just one like, of those am things I that... not using the right like buzzword yeah yeah, hmm. yeah. And you also brought up a good point, too, that I didn't think to add to this conversation, but you talked about networking and friends for life. There's a group of you that met at these IACA conferences and you actually vacationed together. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> like There is a group of us and we're, I mean, I'd call, I'd call them family at this point, you know, just mm -hmm. beyond best friends. Yeah. <laughs> just family that and we see each other several times a year despite living kind of all across the country a quick funny story but i i don't know if stacy bellavan will love this <laughs> that i'm about to tell it but she's so, at least cringing right now yeah yeah so she came out to visit when i was on maternity leave after i had my daughter and so she was really little and i we were at a store you know and she was in the stroller and stacy was pushing the stroller and some guy came up to her and asked if that was her granddaughter oh. to which we both just like cringed and then started laughing and later on you know we talked like an hour later we were talking about it and she had just moved to georgia from denver mm -hmm. and um, she said you know where i'm from now they call those memas <laughs> and so that has become her name. My kids to this day just call her Mima and know her as Mima. Oh, you know what? I saw a reference to that on Facebook, but did not understand the backstory. Yeah. So now I got yeah. the backstory. Now you know. Oh, man. So, yeah. So, so just uh, to fill in the blanks there, who are some of the other folks that you met at the conference and is in that group? Sam Gwynn. She's a staple there. Allison, formerly known as Allison Mayer, Allison Sullivan. <laughs> I got a, I got a throwback for you, Amanda Carr Clark. She's, she's been out wow. of the game for a while. Yeah. yeah. Carolyn Cassidy, of course, and Albert Mesa. Yeah. Erica Jackson. You know, I mean, they're a pretty yeah. solid crew there. Yeah, well, let's talk about personal interests then, as we wrap up this episode and. So you mentioned the young children and that keeping you busy, but you're also a fan of live music, right? I am. Yeah, yeah. I go see any live music I get a chance for. And I'm kind of spoiled that Red Rocks Amphitheater is yeah. like less than 15 minutes from my house. So that's just wow. kind of my like home yeah. center concert venue, you know. All um, right. Do, do you have a favorite that you saw there? Oh, maybe. Let's see. I mean, I'm. A big Brandy Carlisle fan, and I, mm -hmm. she plays there every summer, so I, I gotta say that, like, it's just, yeah, yeah blows your socks mm. off. So, yeah, is there somebody on your bucket list that you haven't seen yet? Oh, mm, I don't think so. I I know if I sit around and think about it, it'll come back to me, and this will probably be what keeps me up tonight thinking about it. But yeah. they're out there yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. I don't know if I just underestimate the number of people that are live music fans, but it seems like there are an awful lot of analysts that I talk to and interview that tell me live music is their personal interest. And really? so I don't know if there's a correlation there or it just maybe I'm underestimating the number of fans out there of live music. 
That's it. That would be interesting to yeah. dig into deeper. Mm-hmm. So, all right. And then also just wanted to get your take. I had Jonathan Softly on the show and I guess we were back in December. He lives and works in Texas and he was talking, he was talking about his husband and, and I was wanted to get his take on, you know, being in Texas, being in law enforcement and obviously being part of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. It was nice to hear that he was supported in his current role. And he, I mean, he did have a, a story about when him and his husband went to go get their uh, license. But but other than that, it was it was good to hear that the police departments that he had worked for had had been fully supported of him. And so I just wanted to ask you kind of the similar types of questions, like what's your experience been for Denver PD? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad to hear that he's had good supportive experiences and and I can say the same, you know, I mean, obviously things have changed over my 16 plus years there and I'm, you know, far more comfortable to, to talk about my family and have pictures up mm-hmm. of my wife and my kids and, and uh, than I was, you know, when I started. But I think that, like, I, I really feel supported. I, I'll tell a quick story. So obviously the, the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs, those recent happened at the end of last year, really recent. And, mm-hmm. you know, like touched, touched a nerve for everyone being so geographically close, but then also the LGBT plus community, it really hits home. And so our chief of police within a few days, you know, sent an email department wide, just acknowledging it, like saying out loud that, hey, you know, if you if you're feeling impacted by this and here's some resources and and we're all in this together and and just some really kind, great words. And another thing he did that I thought was super cool was he authorized officers to wear a pride badge for the rest of the year. And and then and he wore it and the deputy chief, she wore one as well for the rest of the year. They had had the the normal Denver Police Department badge, but then there's a special pride edition with the rainbow kind of circling the the badge. So it's just like really, really cool to see how support has evolved from, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of just being like just okay or or tolerating even, you know, members of that community to actively like department wide just talking about it and and visibly supporting, you know, this community. So I think that's that's been great. And of course, you know, there's there's always going to be those like awkward stories i have like a funny awkward story if you have a minute yeah good yeah so there was an officer who worked in my office but like different unit but we all knew each other and we all you know talk amongst ourselves and he was fairly new up in that unit and so when i was pregnant with my with my daughter it was fairly early on and no no one knew I think one mm-hmm. person at work knew. And so I was like, I don't know. How do you do this? Like, how do you tell people like that? <laughs> so <laughs> so I uh, I was like, I'll get some breakfast burritos and just say, hey, guys, like, I don't know. Here's some breakfast burritos. I got some good news. <laughs> so, so I do that. I tell everyone. And this officer, Brian is his name. He goes, oh, great. Congratulations. Were you planning on it? And I just kind of paused for a minute and I was like, I was like, actually, you have no idea how much my wife and I had to plan this. Like, yes, very, a lot of planning. 
Yeah. And he just like his face kind of turns red and, you know, like, <laughs> we just start laughing about it. And I was like, also, like, just you should never ask anyone that question, because what are you going to do if they say no? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Just not maybe just not a safe question for anyone. But, uh, yeah. you know, so so there's like, I think just always going to be those little coming out moments, I guess. But but that was yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it is. It is funny that you mentioned that because it is kind of a question like they used to be like, you know, like it was an accident. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. The first, yeah. like the conception was an accident kind of thing. And I guess that, that does seem kind of like an old way of of thinking. Like I remember like they, they had to declare that like that's I remember my my family sometimes it's like you know you almost had to declare it as if it was it was not you know okay or something like that unless you knew the exact reason why this conception happened (laughs) yeah like later on i asked him i was like what were you gonna do if i said no and started crying (laughs) so i I teased him about it for, for a good while so then in terms of the planning portion of that i mean there obviously as you're doing there lots of decisions to make in terms of this whole process but then you both decide who's going to get pregnant right mm-hmm. yeah which somehow managed to be me twice i don't know how i felt for that but here we are uh, yeah well i was just wondering how that all came about yeah i think for me i was just like oh i don't yeah i can be pregnant i i don't <laughs> mind and my wife aspen was like oh i don't want to do that at all <laughs> uh, she had like pretty strong feelings about it and yeah. okay and then well. and then she saw me go through it and she was like well i would love to have another kid but like I now I definitely never want to do that and so I was like all right like here we are <laughs> yeah all right I'll take one for the team on the second yep, one too yep, so exactly. yeah yeah kind of thing well I guess it, well, at least it was one of those situations where you know one was a hard no and the one was open to it because if you were both hard no then it gets a that's a that's kind of a yeah. It yeah. gets a little bit more planning. Not that it's a sure, more road stop. Yeah. It just takes more planning, right? Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, very good. Our last segment to the show is words to the world, and this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Chris, what are your words to the world? So I think my words to the world are related to our field and that I would just say get out from behind your desk from behind your computer and go on ride-alongs go on warrants sit with a call taker sit with a dispatcher connect and network with people in your department and that that's just take up every opportunity you can to learn more about your department and your data and how things work and why things are the way they are and that it's going to be not only interesting, but really helpful to your job. Very good. Why well, leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk about about you later? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Chris. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. This was great to catch up. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.